about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. What anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move, I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my own concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Good evening. Good to be with you. Uh, We're actually going to focus on chapter 12. Uh, There's so many strange things in that reading, right? Chapter 12 and verses 7 to 10. So if you have a question about anything else, you can go ask someone else about them. I'm just going to focus on that. Let's pray. Great God and loving Heavenly Father, you don't leave us in the dark, you speak. And you speak even into the darkest and more complicated parts of our existence. And Father, we pray now as we contemplate your word that we would see the weaknesses of the Lord Jesus that bring us freedom and power and that we would know what it is to partake of them. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, I didn't know a whole lot about the backstory of J.K. Rowling until I read a commencement speech she gave uh, very recently. Uh, She was in front of Harvard And basically, to begin her talk, she announced all of the failures of her past life. Pre-Harry Potter days. It went a little something like this. I think it fair to say that by any conventional measure, a mere seven years after my graduation day, I had failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded. I was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as it is possible to be in modern Britain without being homeless. The fears my parents had for me and those I had for myself, they had all come to pass. And by every usual standard, I was the biggest failure I knew. So it begins a very interesting exploration of failure and how through the darkness she was taken to a point where the only way forward was a young boy with glasses and a scar, Harry Potter, and bringing him into the light of day. It's it's a fascinating story really. And it echoes some of what we read from 2 Corinthians today. Of the incredible power and the amazing things that can happen in weakness, darkness, and calamity. In in the shadows of life, if you like. That can often be more powerful than we give them credit for. But in other ways, her story doesn't really help us at all. Because there are so many stories full of calamity from which no one came out from the calamity. There was no dream of the heart to pull them out. There was no great story or great fortune on the other side. There was only weakness and pain. The other problem that J.K. Rowling presents us with is that really in the darkness in those moments, what she had to move forward was the thing that Emerson said, the American poet, trust 
thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. She had herself and her own dream and nothing more. And I know if you've experienced anything of calamity in your life, you know that that is often not enough. In 2 Corinthians today, I think we see something quite different. The Apostle Paul has been accused through this whole letter of being utterly weak and pathetic. Like J.K. Rowling, that his entire life was a failure. But what Paul says in this final passage that underwrites the whole of the letter is that in, in his supposed pathetic weakness, the almighty power of the living God has been unleashed and at work in a way his opponents could not even imagine. And so what I want to talk about today is how is it, like Paul, we can experience the power of God? That sounds good, doesn't it? We're going to do it under four headings from chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. Four Ps. Going to look at the place of power, the posture of power, the pursuit of power, and the paradox of power. Place, posture, pursuit, paradox. I can't even say it. It's such a mouthful. Place. What is the place of power for Paul? Chapter 12 starts with an interesting account from Paul, don't you think? He describes an encounter, a revelation, a vision he had 14 years ago. He says it in a strange way. He kind of talks about a man who had it, but he's talking about himself. He's distancing himself from it because his opponents would but literally drool over a vision like this one that Paul had. They were so into visions and into describing them into micro detail and, and taking a dig at them. He, distanced, he distances himself from it. But in this vision, Paul, he, he says, is taken up to the third heaven in verse 2. The highest layer of revelation possible into paradise in verse 4. Hearing inexpressible things. It's a drool-worthy vision. But what's interesting is that Paul isn't that interested in it at all. The only reason he's describing this vision is to explain what happens next. He says in verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. You see, Paul talks about a vision and says, you know what? That wasn't where the power was. That wasn't where God was working. Let me tell you where God was working. In my thorn. Now, we don't really know what the thorn was for Paul. It's a bit hard to tell. People have taken guesses through the whole ages. Maybe migraines, some people have said, depression. Maybe he had a limp. Maybe he was crippled by memories of his past. Life, we don't really know, but something is happening in Paul's life that is chronic, constant, and debilitating to some extent. To the point where he describes that it torments him. What's also really interesting here is the way he describes the thorn. He calls it a messenger of Satan. 
And indeed, the word torment, do you know what it means? It actually means to, to be beaten. It's an epic beatdown for someone who's been hit so much that they are black and blue. Paul says this thorn was not an angelic encounter, but a demonic one. He was literally taken up to the third heaven, then beaten back down. Now, let's just pause for a moment. We're going to think about what that means. But this does tell us something a little bit interesting about suffering that I just want to dwell on just for a second. The Bible has a lot of things to say about suffering. But there's something quite interesting here. Because in this moment, Paul describes a thorn that is given to him, presumably by God, he means, but also comes to him from a satanic messenger. In other words, his suffering is messy and complicated. On one hand, there's a good father overall. On the other hand, there's an enemy coming to assault and kill him. It's complicated. And I think this passage helps us pause for a second and go, you know what? It's complicated, the suffering in my life. I can't just look at it and go, oh, God has given me this. Because sure, he's overall, but there are more things at play in this world than this. In the Bible, suffering and its origin is messy. It's a complicated picture. But what Paul is clear about is that even though this is a demonic assault of, of types, his good father is using that beating to be a balm. He's turning what should take his life into something that will give him life. Because the, our good father has such victory over evil and suffering that he turns it all to good. So what is that good that this thorn is doing in Paul? And that's in verse 7 as well. Paul says, here's why I got the thorn. To keep me from becoming conceited. Literally to keep me from having a higher view of myself than I should because of the, the revelation that I had. Because there was a chance that having experienced something so remarkable that he would think that the power rested in him. And the thorn is literally to burst his balloon and to remind him who he actually is. See, the way this works is this. I don't know if you have experience with thorns, uh, but there used to be a bougainvillea in our backyard. I say used to because I got rid of it. It took me months because it was so big. And I don't know if you know about bougainvilleas, but there are thorns everywhere on those things. And that, you know, they, they would pierce through my shoes and everything. Uh, but just after I got rid of it, we, we went overseas to Japan. And I noticed then that a month after having finished the bougainvillea that there was a cut on my leg that just wouldn't heal. It kept scabbing up and falling off and scabbing up and falling off, but not healing. And I was sitting down sometime on the trip, and I was looking at my leg, thinking, there's something, something weird happening there. And it's kind of something protruding out. And I went down, and, and I pulled out this bougainvillea thorn that had been in my leg for a month. And this, right, this was an intercontinental thorn. It had gone from Sydney to Tokyo, right? And... The thing I learned about thorns from this was that the thing about having a thorn in your flesh is that it keeps you wounded. It, it keeps you from healing. It keeps you weak and dependent. And that's what the thorn was doing to Paul. That's what God was at work doing. Drawing him into a place 
of dependence and need. But the question is, why? If God was working in the mess of that to bring that about, and let's think a little bit more about that, our second P, posture. What is the posture of power in this passage? Because you see in verse 8 that where this takes Paul is into a position, a posture of pleading. He asked Jesus to take the thorn away. Jesus, you've got, you've got to get this away from me. I'm be so much more effective without it. This is so hard. This torment is more than I can handle. I love Jesus' answer in verse 9, don't you? Jesus doesn't say yes, and he doesn't say no. He says yes in a different way. Don't you love that? Jesus always has more imagination for our life than we do. But his answer is profound. He says, my grace, in verse 9, is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, Paul, uh, what Jesus is saying to Paul at this point is, you know what, mate? You don't need me to take the thorn away. That's not what you need. What you need is me. Because my grace, which here is, is, is a word using to, to symbolize Jesus' resurrection power that floods into Paul's life through the Holy Spirit. My grace with you, me with you in this situation is what you need. Because my grace is sufficient to carry you in, through, and beyond this. So you don't need that thorn to be taken away. Even further, he says, you know what? The power that I have, it doesn't actually come into effect in you unless you are weak. Until you are needy and dependent, there is no room in you for it. If you want to experience my resurrection power fully, then the place of weakness is where you must be. John Calvin, one of the French reformers, put it like this in describing this passage. He says, you know, valleys are watered with rain to make them fruitful. While in the meantime, high summits of the lofty mountains remain dry. Therefore, let that person become a valley who desires to receive the heavenly reign of God's spiritual grace. You see, the posture in which you experience the power of God is the posture of the valley, the posture of pleading, the place of weakness. That is where Jesus is, his sufficiency, his perfection, his victory is actually tasted in a remarkable way. Now for me, these verses are actually quite personal uh, because they became a lifeline for me in a season when things were very dark. Let me explain a little bit to you. Uh, when, in my first year of Bible college, my wife Cass became very sick. And now that was okay to start with, right? Because I'm, I'm one of those fixers, right? Like something happens and goes wrong and I just get in there and I fix it. And, you know, I manage it and, you know, I just like, well, we'll just get the appointments and we'll do all the things and I'll just take after the house and we'll look after you and we'll be all good. 
But you know, a month turned into two, turned into three, turned into a year, turned into two years, turned into three. And I got into a pretty dark place where I was thinking, man, this is, this is never going to end. And that time I was uh, working at a church, I was preaching stacks, I was working really hard at college, and I was just felt at the edge of my capacity. And I said to God, God, you, you've got to take this away. You have got to take this away because I don't know how to do all these things. There isn't strength in me to do all these things. I can't be a pastor and love my wife like I promised, so I don't think I can be a pastor anymore. It was in a particularly low point of darkness that I actually heard a sermon on this passage. And the preacher, he said, you know what? God doesn't need you to get rid of your weakness. God wants you and your weakness. You see, God isn't after strong people. He's after weak people who through their weakness become strong. It was a a turning point for me. Because what I realized is that my life as a pastor, my life uh, as a student, my life as a husband was all based on me and my capacity and my intelligence and my gifts and who I was. And in this circumstance, Jesus was pushing me and pushing me and pushing me saying, how is your capacity going now? Maybe it's time to stop thinking about you and your power and start asking about me and mine. And that was a turning point for me in being put into the valley and calling on his power and not my own. That circumstance has passed. But God's power was able to bring me through and beyond and out of it in my weakness. That's the posture. The third thing we want to think about, well, how is it then in an ordinary life What does the pursuit of this power look like? And you see in verse 9 that there's actually a little bit um, of a shift in Paul. See the therefore halfway through verse 9? Therefore, on the basis of this experience with the thorn and my conversation with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. So that Christ's power may rest on me. You see, he comes out of the circumstance and says, I'm going to pursue this now. Let's think about that. How is it that you boast in weakness? Three practical things for you. The first thing, I think, is that you need to be able to welcome weakness. You see, what Paul says is that he gladly boasts in weakness. And in verse 10, that he delights in weakness. See, this is someone who now uh, has his perspective on what happens in his life shifted. When he sees calamities roll in, he doesn't just eye disaster. In some miraculous way, he eyes opportunity. Because he doesn't need to avoid weakness He doesn't need to fight it off. He doesn't need to be without it. Because in weakness is the opportunity to experience the enduring power of the risen Christ. And that changes everything. 
Notice how in uh, verse 10 he expands the category a little bit. He says, I delight, I delight in weaknesses. And then he says, well, it, that means in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. He's basically naming the list from chapter 11, all the calamities of life. Anything that can come at you in life for him is an opportunity for him to be weak and Christ to be strong. We can welcome our weakness. But the second thing is that, that, that we still need to wrestle. You know, Paul still names the thorn a torment. And he does still plead to the Lord Jesus that it would go away. And weakness in life is not without wrestling. It's not without painful and honest crying out to the Lord Jesus. You see, often when the mess of life rolls in and weakness rolls in, we feel that God is further away, and so we cut off. We say, you're not in this. You're not part of this. And when I pray, that the skies feel like brass. But what you see here is if God is at work in weakness, then actually that place of honest wrestling is perhaps a better place to be than when you were praising God in the, in the sunlight. That that honest, pleading, wrestling in the face of weakness can be a place of immense blessing. We are to welcome it and wrestle with the place and the things of weakness that roll into life. But the third thing is, we are to rest in the end. You see, Paul doesn't boast in suffering and delight in weakness for no reason. He does those things so that Christ's power may rest on him. And for when I am weak, then I am strong. He knows and he is actively seeking in the situation of weakness to rest not on his power, but on Christ's power. That's what the opportunity is. To get rid of self-reliance and take hold of Christ's reliance. To be constantly seeking to live not in his power, but in Christ's power. Resting in it. Actually Deeply, willingly. The things he faces in the end are not for his sake, but in verse 10, for Christ's sake. He walks and welcomes and delights in weakness because they are opportunities for the power of Christ to be seen in and through and around him. And so he walks through weakness for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We had a welcome wrestle and rest in the face of weakness. But there is a fourth thing, and I want to close on this. And this one's very important. The paradox of power. Because as you read this passage, you get to the point of asking, well, this is all just really weird, actually. You know, why can't strong people be strong and weak people be weak? What's the deal with this? Why would I buy into this? How do I know? You know, uh, all our stories aren't J.K. Rowling. How do I know that there's hope on the other side of weakness and suffering and calamity? How do I know that if I rest in Christ, there is anything on the way forward? I know, Jesus, you want me to rest in your power, but not my own, but my self-reliance has done all right up to now, and I don't really think I can give it up. You see, the only reason why chapter 12 makes sense, the only reason why there is any power in weakness, is because, as Paul says in chapter 13, verse 4, 
that the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified in weakness and lives now by the power of God. You see, J.K. Rowling, she went into weakness and came out a superstar. But Jesus Christ went into weakness and came out the side with enough power to lift all of us out of our graves and out of our weakness and into a new eternal life with Him. He is the true and better J.K. Rowling. He wins the victory not just for himself, but for the world. And to the extent that you can see that it was the Lord Jesus who in highest heaven had no weakness, but ultimate power, used that power to build for himself from the clay of which we are made, a lowly house in this world below, and took on the weakness and the humiliation of the cross that we might experience His power. It's to the extent that you see God Himself enfeebled and sharing our garment of mortality for our sake. That all the power for change and life rests in the weakness of the cross. It's when your heart sees that That weakness is something different altogether. Weakness is a chance for the God of the cross to take hold of your life and for you to experience not your power, but His power as He leads you through this life and into every age hereafter. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, Such a big room, so many stories. Some people are sitting here tonight and they don't even know how they're going to deal with tomorrow. And yet, Lord, you're, you're speaking to them right now and you're saying, you know what, your weakness, it's okay. And I am here with you. And I am enough. And so, Father, give them, flood them with hope. Father, some of us here tonight feel like we are, we are a mountain and not a valley that we are all self-reliance and no Christ-reliance. And we pray by the power of your Spirit right now that you would break that mountain and turn it into a valley that we might experience your power. Father, we pray that we would have such a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ that this week we would eye our weakness not as something to fight against, not as something to push to the side, but an opportunity for your power to be seen and felt and known. And we praise and thank you for the Lord Jesus, whose weakness is our healing, whose weakness is our hope, who lives and reigns with you and floods us with power until we see him face to face. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit 
naic.com.au.